We have two classes left, including today's. Next week is the last one. Uh, and then we, I believe we have Travis Russell with a different kind of kingdom in here. And then, that's the title of his thing. He's not starting a kingdom. Uh, and then <laughs> Jeremy will be teaching, uh, I can't, is it just Christian apologetics? What do we call it? Thank you. Evidence. I think it's just what we Christian call it. Christian evidences is just what we call it. Uh, and that'll be over there uh, in the in the fellowship hall. So uh, that is in a couple of weeks. We've got two left, so we decided let's probably get into the New Testament now uh, a little more officially. So uh, this this does lead in from last week. It's It's all the pieces that we've looked at before, but last week in particular with Moses, Joshua, David, the giant things, and that that is their, that the belief is that that's where demons came from, these things uh, that didn't really have a home, that they kind of lived, they were kind of part of both worlds, I guess, uh, if you want to view it that way, and so the thought process was they die, but then where do they go? Well, they just kind of continue to inhabit and all of this stuff. It was the belief, uh, and so working from that Working from that kind of framework, uh, we come into uh, demon-infested territory in the New Testament. We just kind of show up in the New Testament, and all that stuff is happening and going around, and we don't have people going, well, all, all this stuff is happening all of a sudden, and when this guy started showing up, it's just these things are occurring, and I've kind of gotten used to it to the point of, yeah, so-and-so is dealing with this demon thing, so we keep them locked in this room, or they, there's this guy that screams out here outside of the, you know, so we keep them there. Uh, it's just a normal part of their life, and they don't have really any way to address those sorts of things until Jesus starts showing up and doing what he is doing here. Uh, but this is a continuation. If these things are connected to uh, Nephilim and their group, which we showed that a little bit. Hopefully you looked more at uh, the notes on that because we ran out of time towards the end. If those things are connected to that uh, and Jesus, uh, who is very explicitly connected to Moses, Joshua, and David on another uh, a number of other levels, uh, if he's connected with all of those individuals, he's also joining in their kind of ultimate conquest. Jesus defeating all of these things the, the once and for all sort of way uh, would be the I am the ultimate <laughs> conqueror. I'm the one who brings the victory. They got these things off the earth in this way. I'm getting rid of them entirely. Okay, so we're not just dealing with, oh, he casts out demons. That's pretty cool. And that's really the whole purpose of it. No, it's the connecting point of these people in the past, these issues of the past, things that they had a rich history with uh, that we hopefully have more of one now, uh, having gone through all this. Okay, so we're going to talk about Jesus today uh, and his dealing with the supernatural in a number of ways, uh, wilderness and transfiguration, uh, and just general authority that's seen through the casting out, his power and all of this. All of these things being very important uh, to proving who he is and what he's doing. Uh, so the supernatural here is not just a tacked-on sort of deal where uh, it makes Jesus look and interesting or uh, something like that. It does show those things, but there's a much deeper purpose to all of it. Okay, we're going to start with Jesus' authority here. Uh, if you want to turn over to Luke 10, we're going to read uh, a couple sections out of there. We have all sorts of stuff uh, referenced. 
we're going to have to summarize a lot of it. But I encourage you to, to read, study those things uh, on your own time. Okay, throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus doing something both amazing and peculiar, the casting out of demons. It's not really something we're acquainted with throughout the Old Testament. <laughs> Just kind of show up into the Gospels and go, okay, I guess that's a thing that we do throughout the Gospels. Uh, Matthew will give us particular accounts. I'm just picking on Matthew because that's the first one we read through. Uh, we, we have very specific accounts of casting out demons, but then Matthew will just also give us the, and Jesus went through and he was healing people and casting out demons and all that. Just, just like it's a normal everyday thing, because it was. Uh, but there's purpose to all of that. Uh, and we really don't have anything to go, but we really don't get an explanation of, yeah, why is all this occurring now? And when did these things get here and all that? We just walk into a world of this is happening, this is normal, uh, and Jesus is going to address it. Uh, it's amazing in what it shows of Jesus's power. Uh, these powerful entities were no match for the authority and power of Jesus, a truth that pointed to who Jesus was. Uh, so Luke eleven twenty, and then we'll go back into Luke 10. Luke eleven twenty says, and talking about Jesus and Beelzebul, and there's more things that we could talk about there, but we won't because we don't have time. Uh, but this verse in particular, uh, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this driving these things out, uh, and you might even, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because we'll be in Ephesians next week. Uh, but when Paul describes... Uh, the devil and his working in the world, he calls him the prince of the power of the air. It's kingdom language. It's this other kingdom that's here. Do you have Jesus coming through saying, if I'm casting these things out by the power of God, the kingdom is, is coming in. The kingdom of God's coming out, and it's pushing out all of these other kingdoms. Uh, if you've, uh, some of you have been in the Thursday morning class. We're going through Daniel right now. We're talking about all these kingdoms, and God's going to set up this kingdom that will never be destroyed. And here comes Jesus saying, the kingdom of God, this thing that you've been waiting for is coming, and the casting out of demons is part of the proof of that. Uh, Jesus showing new kingdom is here. These old powers are going to be shoved out. Uh, okay, and then Luke 10, uh, 17 through 18, I was asked a question about this a couple summers ago. The 72, or 70, uh, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, and then you have a little bit more discussion. But this whole idea of sending out the 72 or the 70 numbers are sometimes low. Anyway, uh, this number is significant because if we go back to the, uh, and this is the, this is the class Ryan taught for me. And I don't remember how much of this was actually in those notes. Uh, we go back to the Tower of Babel. There are nations listed there in the genealogy before the Tower of Babel, before everybody split up, which we said was uh, the, the world nations being disinherited. You know, God is saying, you go, I'm spreading you out, all this stuff. Uh, and then we said putting spiritual things in authority over them. You look at the genealogy before, you have... 70 or 72 because some of them are two of them are broken up sometimes the 70 or 72 nations listed there so in the jewish mindset 70 or 72 would encapsulate the world 
So Jesus sends out that many. It's a signal of, I'm coming to claim these things, which Psalm 82, Deuteronomy 32, and a few other places uh, that we've discussed, but those two chapters in particular, that's what they're hoping the Son of God's going to do. That's what they're hoping the Messiah is going to do. And so when he says, hey, let's go out and do this limited commission thing, I'm going to send out, oh, I don't know, this many. Well, there's a purpose to that number choice of how many get sent out. It's not because that's all he had available to him or anything like that. That's the number chosen because there is significance to that number. That significance goes back to Tower of Babel. Nations being disinherited, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to get everything. I'm coming to get it all. And then in the next chapter, as we read, kingdom of God's coming, and it's coming for everything. I'm um, crowding out all the other powers, bring everything here. Okay, we need to move faster than this. Uh, just tell, do some, just throughout the lesson, just do this a few times of, hey, come on, you know, we've got two weeks. Move. Does that count for worship, dude? No. Uh, I don't think I can edit that part out. I can't edit out anything in the middle, so now I'm going to have to leave that. Thanks. Uh, Cole Bryant. And it's on the recording. Uh, it's peculiar in that up to this point, we don't have the expulsion of demons in this way. The Old Testament doesn't record the casting out of demons. Uh, and as we saw last week, it doesn't even really deal with where demons came from, except for the translating of uh, the Rephaim word in Isaiah, where it's clearly talking about things being dead. Uh, but that's the word that's there. And so they go with uh, dead spirits. Shades, uh, some translations might say ghosts, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, but that whole shade idea is spirit continuing, continuing to dwell on the earth. The intertestamental period, those books, Enoch and others, do talk about that more, expand on that idea. Uh, but that is in Isaiah and Ezekiel, where we have that word being used of dead things continuing on. So it kind of, for the, for the Jewish mind, that's enough of this is where they came from. They're very spiritually oriented in that way. They have a, a very important context with all of that. Uh, but it doesn't really explicitly say these things died and their spirits continue and those things were demons. It doesn't give us that. Uh, so we do have to put some pieces together. But I think that's the best answer we've got. So, so you're saying the Jews did not believe that the demons were fallen angels. They believed they were souls of dead men. The the Nephilim, in particular. Okay. The giants. So as the giants are wiped out, they're really because they're they are a perversion of God's creation. Of as Jude says, these things leaving their proper position, okay. these spiritual things here, uh, and these physical things here, and creating this stuff that, that God did not create. There's only so many demons. Sure. For the whole world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable to uh, assume from that that there would only be only be so many of those things. Now, the how many of those things are there? When you think about legion stuff like that, it's still quite a few, <laughs> still quite a lot that we're dealing with. But Jesus, it appears the the pattern that we follow, just like we had a ton of these things with Moses, and then Joshua takes most all of them out, and then David finishes them off. Uh, that seems to be what we have here of Jesus is constantly casting these things out, but as we're getting closer to the end of it, it's all that Satan guy, and then, you know, it seems like Jesus is following that same pattern of large amount of them, then wiping those things out, uh, which is another 
kind of following that pattern. Okay. Um, the belief that they were disembodied spirits of the Nephilim provides context for their evil behavior uh, and their desire to become embodied again through human possession. Like, why are they trying to take over people's body? Well, they don't have a body of their own. Um, but what if there's this, uh, they had a body at one point looking to continue their power, even if it's only over one individual or those that get too close in the case of, you know, some of them that are dangerous to others. I found it interesting <clears throat> that it says, when the unclean spirit goes out of man, it passes through <laughs> waterless places. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> why, why that detail? Just because... That's Matthew, right? Or is it Mark? That is Luke. No, it's Luke. Okay. I think Matthew does it as well. Um, yeah, so you have spirits specifically noted, I think, by two of the writers that uh, they're looking for places without water. Why? You know, are we just trying to pad the... <laughs> is he right in this book writing? Does he have a word count limit that he has to reach? And so, like, I don't know. Let's talk about this a little. That's not it. Why, why do we have those details? because they have some connection, something important. I'd be concerned about water, too, if that's how I died. Uh, was, uh, at least my ancestors of global flood last time we had a bunch of power and stuff. At any rate, then you have pigs running into water after demons go into them, and they just take off running. Anyway, uh, water seems to do the trick, which I wonder if that's important at all, if we do anything with water. Uh, anyway. And we'll come back to that maybe next week. Uh, bottom of page one. Uh, what is the significance of casting out demons? It's ultimately the best question to deal with here. Uh, it's right after the announcing of Jesus' kingdom in Mark 1 and Luke 4 uh, through 5. And we're skipping through that. But in those places, Jesus announces the kingdom coming. Uh, and then he starts casting out demons. That's, that seems to be the next course of action for him. Uh, the casting out of demons would merely be something impressive to those kind of unengaged with spiritual background stuff. And that tends to be how we viewed it. That's certainly how I viewed it uh, without all of this stuff was just, okay, sure, casting out demon, great. I, I don't have a context for that. It doesn't really, let's just keep moving on. You know, Teaching on a, a hillside, preaching, all this, I get that. Uh, the other stuff, don't really get, great that he's doing it, move forward. Uh, but if we have this background of Psalm 82 or Deuteronomy 32, then this isn't just some impressive thing. It's part of the reclaiming of all the, the stuff of God bringing these people away from him back to him, uniting things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And again, that's Paul language that we'll get to in Ephesians. Okay, page two. We're not tracking well with time. You guys keep bringing up staples. That's why we're... <laughs> okay, so let's take a step back before the announcement of God's kingdom within the, the Gospels. Uh, and we'll start with one major event, uh, the temptation in the wilderness, uh, which is a very significant event. Uh, Mark goes through it real fast. Uh, Matthew and Luke both cover it uh, in a little more detail. Uh, Luke and Matthew swap the second and third temptations, though. That's a good question for any other time, but not today. Uh, but it is interesting why why they would do that. Uh, you know, who's right? Are they getting it wrong? Or that's not really the question. It's why present them in that order. Uh, it's 
the audience they're talking to. Anyway, uh, the Gospels are arranged in such a way uh, that they remind us of something old while still revealing something new. Uh, they walk down paths walked down before, but approach things differently in light of Jesus. So we're, we're going to see, that's why you have to have, uh, that's why we have to have a good understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, because it, the New Testament can be read. You can learn about Jesus, all of those things, and go, he died for me. I have sin. He died for me to take the punishment of those sins and the sins away uh, so that I would follow after him. Let me try to live like him all this. You can get that from just the New Testament, but not understanding the Old Testament removes so much of that depth and causes us to miss so many things. Uh, and... In the case of the gospel writers, they are pulling from all of these themes and ideas from the Old Testament to show Jesus is the better Israel, he's better Moses, he's better Joshua, he, you know, he's, the real, he's the real thing. Those, those guys were great, uh, they, they tried really hard, they did, but he, you know, he's the perfect version of that. Uh, and that's what they're trying to get across. Take this for example. Um... Uh, Jesus walks the path of Israel in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is called out of Egypt, just like Israel is. This is just on page two. We won't read these, but you just go through. It's interesting. Uh, Jesus is called out of Egypt like Israel. Uh, and there are quotations about scripture fulfillment here. Uh, Jesus passes through water on the way to Israel, just as the people of Israel pass through water on the way to what would ultimately become the nation of Israel. Uh, and... Throughout this, he's connected to Moses and all of this. Moses is the one that's leading Israel through, out of Egypt to the promise, all this stuff. Uh, so you have Jesus being like Moses uh, in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus then goes into the wilderness for 40 days, <coughs> similar to Israel's 40 years of being in the wilderness. Uh, so there's all these pattern connections. Then Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, through instruction about who kingdom people are, which is what the Ten Commandments and then what Moses does. Moses on the mountain is given these, this is what the kingdom is, this is who kingdom people are, gives that uh, to the people here and they make a covenant and all of that. And so again, you have Jesus following Moses' footsteps and all of this. Uh, and we can keep going, uh, but this is enough for us to see how Jesus is retreading the steps of Israel, being connected to Moses, so now let's talk about Matthew 4. If you want to turn over to Matthew 4, I'm not sure how much of it we'll read directly, but it would be helpful just to have it available to us. Wilderness, good or bad? That's a question. I know we haven't asked questions in here very much. It's bad. Wilderness is not a spiritually good place. Um, now, the people of God going through the wilderness was not a big deal when they kept God at the center, followed his lead, all of that stuff. Okay, wildernesses happen to us, um, but following after God, going with him is the way that we make it through that. You just think of you know Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's deep darkness is the actual. So it's this whole idea of, these places of evil, darkness, trial, all of this. If I'm following after Shepherd, everything's fine. If I'm following after him, he'll get me through. Uh, and so we need to see Jesus do that. 
follow after God. He's out here in the wilderness. Wilderness is not good. Uh, do remember one of the things that we pointed out about the wilderness, and this was the Jewish belief, but this is also in Levitical law, something that they had to practice, uh, that the wilderness was regarded as a place of evil where they would send out right, that scapegoat. This, their, their sins would leave the camp of God and go out into the wilderness where they belong. <laughs> they don't belong here. Put them out there in the dead, desolate, horrible place. That's where sins go. Uh, and then as that developed over time, they would even just carry the goat out to a cliffside and say, with all the sins and just toss it off the cliff. You know, we got to kill this thing because this stuff's bad and evil and all this. Uh, so they, that's, that's where uh, those things went. That's what the wilderness was. Uh, but do remember, you have one of those things sacrificed for God. Uh, and we wouldn't say that the goat was called God. Uh, and then that same language is used in Leviticus for the other goat is for Azazel. For some reason, people will just call that, yeah, well, that's what that goat is. That's the name of that thing. That doesn't follow the pattern of language we get in Leviticus. It's for this thing. It's for these things that are out there. They actually believe there was a desert demon that lived out in the wilderness. So don't go out in the wilderness. The wilderness is bad. <laughs> that was their thought process. You don't want to be there. You don't want to go there. Bad things happen there. That's where death is. Our God's the God of life. Wilderness is bad. Uh, that was their thought process. Uh, it's certainly true that evil is present here. It just so happens Jesus goes out into the wilderness and encounters Satan there, uh, the devil here. In the New Testament, this idea of Satan, by the way, is very singular. We talked about Old Testament uh, having more of a plural idea because the word just means adversary. Uh, but here in the New Testament, this is also more of a singular presentation to us. That may be important. We can't talk about it today. Uh, or maybe we can. Let's see if we finish early. Uh, the evil present here, Satan, comes to Jesus with three temptations in the wilderness. Uh, unlike Israel, Jesus will not succumb to the evil around him, but stand firm with God and his word in obedience. So it shows that where Israel failed... Jesus is going to succeed. Uh, Israel's job to, it was through Israel that God said multiple times before, before uh, Saul and David and Solomon and all of those, uh, but we do see this with David and Solomon, but even before them, it's through Israel that God wants to show the world a better way. Uh, and it's through them that God would like to see the nations come back to him. By having a nation that belongs directly to him and saying, look, this is where life is. This is better. This is righteousness. This is... And they failed tremendously, repeatedly. <laughs> Jesus will not. Uh, and now that the church is that. The church is the light of God bringing people to... This is what it's like to live under God's rule and reign, uh, to be in his kingdom. That's what our job is. Just hold on to that for next week. Okay, so Jesus uh, gets these three temptations, uh, and we'll go from Matthew's gospel. We'll go in Matthew's order. Uh, Luke switches two and three, or Matthew switches two and three. I don't remember which one comes first, but there's a reason for that. Anyway, uh, number one is always turn stones to bread to satisfy hunger uh, is the first temptation here. Uh, and then the second one here is jump from the top of the temple to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And then the third one here, top of page three, 
worship Satan, you know, worship me, Jesus will be granted all the kingdoms of the world. That's, that's if you just bow down before me, I'll give you all this. He takes him up to a mountaintop, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all that. Mountains. Is that some place that we should care about? Satan takes him to the top of a mountain to say, look, you know, all the kingdoms of the world and all of this. Mountains aren't really good or bad. Mountains are where they think the process, or like uh, the highest points of the earth, that's where the heaven and earth would meet sort of idea. And that's true of many cultures, um, still to this day in some of them, uh, where they think that's, that's where you really encounter God or spiritual things is at the top of a mountain. So you have Satan saying, let's go to the top of the mountain and let's look. All the kingdoms of the world, all this could be yours if you just bow down to me here. Uh, we can understand the temptations being presented here. First temptation would address the hunger pain that Jesus was feeling. Israel felt that pain as they're wandering through the wilderness. How many times did they complain about food and eating and you brought us out here just to die and we want to go back to Egypt. Bring us back into our slavery. That was better. Uh, which is a whole metaphor about sin and all of this. It's not better. It's not better at all. Uh, faith in God is better. He'll address the issue. Uh, but they want to go back. Jesus here isn't grumbling, complaining. He is waiting for God to take care of him, which is how this ends. The, the angels, think they come minister to him. Uh, but he continues in faithfulness. Second temptation is an attempt, Satan uses scripture here, uh, to make Jesus prove who he is to Satan. I don't think Jesus knows. So here, here's what I think Jesus knows, or Satan knows. I think Satan knows what the Son of God is going to do. Not entirely sure he knows if this is the guy yet. He's being called such, John the Baptist and all, you know, all this. I don't think he's entirely sure that this is the guy yet. There is a point in all of the Gospels, except for John's, but John's different, uh, there's, there is a point in the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that things change. And it's after a certain event every time we're, we're getting there. Uh, so here in the wilderness, I think Satan knows this guy's being called the Son of God. He knows what the Son of God is here to do. Not yet sure if this is the guy. Um, and so he's trying to feel this stuff out. That's may, yeah, You can think differently on that. That's just where I'm at. Uh, this seems to be, uh, Jesus doesn't, doesn't take uh, Satan's uh, trick here of jumping off the temple. You know, God won't, God won't let the Son of God, you know, endure harm and all of this. Uh, just to add to all of this, Israel's whole idea is Jesus is going to come set up this earthly kingdom. I'm not going to say that Satan knows better than they do. It'd probably be his thought process, too, of... God's going to bring this kingdom and take power from there on the earth and all of this, which is not what God's doing. God's going to go next level above all of that stuff. I don't think Satan knows that. Just because he's some spiritual being doesn't make him omniscient or know all these things uh, that, that God knows. Uh, so he's trying to feel all this stuff out. You know, Surely God won't let the Son of God get harmed. Well, we're going to the cross, so he has no idea about how this is going to work. Uh, which is why I think we get to the cross. We're going to kill this guy so that this kingdom cannot be established. That's exactly what God is planning for <laughs> Satan to do. Because if he dies, that's, you know, that's the ultimate victory here. Uh, because I'll bring him back. So he set a perfect trap. Yep. 
Uh, okay, but third temptation, very interesting here, provides Jesus with the solution to his mission. He's coming to bring all the nations together, and Satan just offers that up as much as he can, right? If Jesus is worshiping Satan, then who's really in charge, right, in the power dynamic? Uh, you can also ask the question, you can ask any question you want. You might ask the question, uh, it, does Satan have authority to do that? He is said to have power, like he's working and all of that stuff. But ultimately it all belongs to God. But it also doesn't all belong to God yet. You know, these people are living their own devices, doing unrighteousness and all those sorts of things. Might be semantics about how the words are used. At any rate, Satan is trying to say, okay, I know what the Son of God is here to do, to bring all the nations back to God. I'll make that happen right now. Let's go up to the top of the mountain. And the fact that they do that, wilderness to mountain, wherever that mountain is, I don't think it's, they trekked up some mountain that was nearby. We just go in, in the narrative, in all of the narratives, from here we are to here we are. So that is some kind of display of Maybe I can give you all these things. Here's what you have to do. And mission's over. You know, plan accomplished. Not really, uh, obviously, because that puts Satan at the top. Uh, but he offers this to, to Jesus here. Jesus doesn't go for it. And uh, we move on from there. Okay. Right, but if Jesus sins, then he's not the perfect sacrifice Right, everything anymore. falls apart. And so. Yeah. Yeah. So if at any point Jesus is not, if at any point Jesus is like Israel in the wilderness, things fall apart. Uh, that's why they fall apart in the Old Testament, because of Israel's behavior, uh, constantly making the wrong choice, though they make right choices as well. I mean, they're, they're us. We make right choices, also make the wrong choices. Uh, Jesus is not going to do that here. Okay, uh, from here, Jesus' kingdom begins to work. This is about midway, page three. He calls his disciples, after this, he calls his disciples, starts casting out demons, as we noted earlier. Alongside all of this is some significant imagery. Okay, we call disciples, we call 12. 12 is important. Why, why 12? Why that number? Uh, there were just 12 special people, and so that's who Jesus went with. There's all these other disciples, too. Like, there's all these other men, women that are traveling and coming in and out of frame, and we get that in some of the other Gospels, too. Uh, I think Chosen has done a good job of illustrating that. There are other people there outside of those 12. But this phrase, the 12, and these 12 individuals that are specifically noted, why? Why 12? Well, we have... That's how many tribes of Israel we have. Israel was supposed to be the reclaiming agent. Not, I'm not saying God, uh, God desired for Israel to be better than they were, uh, but he knew that they weren't going to be. Uh, but it's those tribes of Israel. We even end up with half tribes and all of this stuff, but we don't say that. What we say is the 12 tribes, of this idea of 12 is very important. Uh, and when Judas dies, they say we need to appoint another for the 12. And we, we need 12. 12 is important, and they know that. Uh, and 12 is important because it corresponds to this whole tribes of Israel idea. And God wants this group, his selected, which was 12 tribes there, uh, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of Israel, uh, to go and be the agent that brings uh, the world back to him. 
So now we're going to take 12 disciples and go do this job. Okay. Uh, so all that's important. Um, next part there, alongside this calling of disciples is the event called the Limited Commission. We read part of that a little bit ago. Uh, and then the Great Commission comes at the end of Matthew. That's why we call it Limited. They just go out for a bit, come back, report, all that stuff. The Great Commission is go into all the world that this is what we're doing. This it, The kingdom's here. Take it everywhere uh, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, instead of going into all the world, uh, the call was to go to the surrounding cities, preparing the way for Jesus. 70 are called or 72. Again, we've talked about that enough. If you don't understand it still, just ask me. 70 are called here to go ahead of Jesus. Significant number that takes us back to the 70 nations listed for us in Genesis 10. That's the moment where God dispossesses. The Son of God is now here, and he's going to repossess uh, those nations, bring them back to God. Uh, so Jesus, in the casting out of demons, in the wilderness temptation, in those events, is fulfilling Psalm 82, Deuteronomy 32, the hope that the Jewish people had of what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to bring in this kingdom, and all of the nations of the world are going to be drawn to it. That's what he's doing. Now, they still have a warped idea of what that kingdom's going to be, understandably so, uh, but they still have this wrong idea what, what that kingdom is, but that's what Jesus is accomplishing, bringing the nations back to him. Okay, let's talk about Jesus on the mountain. Good, we got about 10 minutes. Uh, one of the greatest admissions in the Gospels is that of Matthew 16, where Peter recognizes, you know, who, who do men say that I am, and the disciples throw out a bunch of answers, and then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter uh, that speaks up, says, you're Christ, son of the living God. Gets it. Now, there's still a lot of stuff for Peter and the other disciples that they have to sort through uh, in their theology and their beliefs and all of this. Even when we get into Acts, there's still, like, Peter needs some, <laughs> Peter specifically, as well as the others. But Peter has shown some things that say, no, this is, this is it. This is what I'm doing. But he is the one that makes a great uh, admission here of, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's after this point in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that things trend the same way immediately. The, the, the story shifts into the second act. Like now we're moving towards the conclusion of the story. Always after the transfiguration. So coincidence between the three Gospels or... Uh, there's something deeper going on with that, more than just coincidence or uh, things like that. Okay, page four. Great. Uh, what's most interesting about this admission uh, is where it takes place. I think, uh, yeah, go over to Matthew 16. We're just messing around in Matthew's gospel today. It's Matthew 16... Um, 16, where the, yeah, 16, 16, where the, uh, where this confession is made. And then there's this whole discussion here. What follows, uh, every time. So after this confession is made, Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die now. He doesn't do that before. It's only after this point that he starts talking that way. They get that important piece. There's other, <coughs> there's other stuff they need to figure out. But they understand that point, and so Jesus goes, okay, you know who I am. Now we need to talk about what I'm supposed to do, which they're not going to get, which is why we get the whole get behind me Satan thing very quickly. 
you're acting like Satan being opposed to the because this is what I'm here to do. Uh, but then you follow all of that with Transfiguration, which is up on a mountain and just a wild scene. Uh, so we'll get there in a moment. But notice where this confession happens. Uh, chapter 16, verse 13 of Matthew. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, all right, let's talk about Caesarea Philippi historically. Uh, this is the area that was formerly under control all the way back in Moses' day by King Og of Bashan. This is that area. Um, we know that there were giant things there. Moses, I mean, that's the first place we're introduced. So it's like the oldest place of giant interaction that we have recorded outside of Genesis 6. Uh, is is this location, King Og and all of that stuff, where they were really at their peak, because from here, Moses is going to kill some. Joshua and Israel are going to kill almost all of them, except for the ones in the Philistine cities, and then David finishes it, right? So this oldest place of giant activity and all of this stuff is what comes to be known in the New Testament as Caesarea Philippi. It's the same area. So on a map, geographically, this is where we are. <laughs> In that place. Let's continue. Uh, this place in Jesus' day, historically, uh, and before that, before Jesus' day, uh, throughout the Old Testament and onward, it was known as the place of the serpent. That's what it was called. Uh, it's not hard for us, and the Jews did this too. You hear serpent, you go, oh, like Genesis 3. Yeah, like Genesis 3. That's that's their mindset uh, John will even bring up the serpent in Revelation. I mean, that's, that is a very important piece for them. You know, they hate that thing. They've, everybody hates snakes. Uh, if you like snakes, you should hate them. Serpents are bad. Uh, that's, Amen. Listen, that's just the Bible. That's not me. Uh, all right. uh, it was also thought this area, Caesarea Philippi, uh, where, or the Bashan area, uh, place of the serpent. It was also thought in the various mythologies, and the Jews understood this, uh, but it was also thought to be a connecting place uh, to the underworld. That was how you, that's how you reach the underworld was like going through this particular cave thing. You could enter into the <coughs> place of the dead. You could, in theory, you know, leave the place of the dead and come back to the land of the living too in mythologies and stuff like that. You know, cool stuff. It's like what they're doing in all of the Marvel movies is that nobody's really dead. Uh, you can always come back at some point. So that, that whole idea is there. You know, you, you go to the underworld, you can reach that from the physical world. It's just a connecting point somewhere and you can pass on. They thought that this was the place where that is. Underworld's here, at least in Greek mythology. Underworld's here. So what would you have walking around this particular area if this is where the you know, the escalator to the place of the dead is. So you might have dead things making their way from wherever they died to the underworld. So you would have shade spirits, all of this stuff. Just so happen to be in the play, they just so happen to think those things are from dead giants, and they just so happen to be, you know, in the area where giants ruled at one point in a very heavy way. A lot of connecting pieces. Okay. Uh, in Jesus' day, there is a temple to Zeus in this area, known for its temple to Zeus. That's bad. Zeus is a false god. I have no doubts that this is 
something that at one point just came to be called Zeus or whatever. I'm not saying that it had you know, lightning and all those powers and whatever. It's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, but that kind of was developed around this thing. But that some being acquiring power for itself was like, yeah, you know, call me this and whatever and worship me and sacrifice your kids and do this and whatever. Like that's, that's how it always goes. Uh, so you have that here in this area. Uh, and also we skipped over one that's really important. Lastly, in this area... Uh, near, uh, it's in this area near Mount Hermon. That's where that mountain is. We talked about that when we talked about King Og. This mountain, the one where the Jewish people said, isn't that where the angels rebelled and made that deal together to rebel against God? They said that that's on Mount Hermon. Where is Mount Hermon? It's right here in Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> this area. Okay. Just, just understand these two pieces. I think we have like three minutes. Just understand these two pieces. This is an evil, evil place. And in the Jewish mindset, they would see this, this area would be known for its uh, worship of false, uh, a false god and gods that come along with that. Place where maybe the dead are, place that was formerly ruled back in the day. By, like that's their context. This is an evil, spiritually awful place. It's also the place most likely where Jesus was transfigured. Okay, let's move from here. It's in this place, if that's the case, it's in this area, Jesus is transfigured. What is said at the transfiguration of Jesus? Voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. You know what happens from here on out after that moment? What happens from this moment is... The we we fast forward. We start snowballing down the mountain to we've got to get this guy killed. I wonder if there's significance to Jesus standing on top of a spiritually evil place where these things supposedly rebelled against God, and then you have Jesus going to the top of that mountain saying, "I'm here," and the voice of God saying, "This is my son. Listen to him." In like it's like walking into, uh, it's like if I put on all of my orange Oklahoma State cowboy stuff and just walked into Norman or any of the other and said, you know, here here I am and just really touted it and all this, uh, I'll probably die. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, that's that's what this is. He shouts those things. He, he has all this proclaimed. He says, this is where my kingdom's going to start and all this. We snowball down to, we got to kill this guy. And that's how the Gospels go. All, all three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, of those Gospels, confession, transfiguration, we've got to get this guy killed. And if you want to throw in John's Gospel with all of this, you get the language of Satan entered his way into Judas's heart. Like He's trying to find a way of, I know what the Son of God's here to do, he thinks, earthly kingdom. I know that this is the guy now. It's clear. So we need to kill him. And that's how the Gospels progress. It doesn't change the actual... We know what happens to Jesus. We, we know these events and all this. But it brings that spiritual background to all of what's happening in this physical world here. Why, why do the Gospels all progress in the same way? Why at this place does, does Jesus... Do, why have this happen at all? Do they need this? Um... If it's a telegraphing of who God or who Jesus is and what he's there to do, this becomes an important thing. And like Don said earlier, it sets the perfect trap of up on the most evil place, 
Son of God's here, and he's bringing his kingdom. Oh, we need to kill him. Perfect trap. Uh, from here, our class next week, well, your take-home question. How do the New Testament writers discuss the supernatural outside of the Gospels, is what I mean. And what's our role in all of that? That's where we're going to end, because we play a part in all of this stuff to this day. We'll talk about that. We're way over time, so you're dismissed. Thanks for being here.